Amen. Please be seated. If you would turn to Psalm 103, the 103rd Psalm, it's on page 502 of the Pew Bible that's there in front of you. Um, We're going to work our way through this today and consider what is God like as we go to the scriptures. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on uh, the reading and preaching. Pray with me. Lord, as surely as Christ Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, uh, so we are tempted in this pilgrim life uh, to believe the lies of the enemy. And we need so much for you to uh, reset us. We need so much for you to shape uh, our minds, to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, would you put out of our uh, heads this morning Um, the allures of the world, uh, the boastful pride of life, the temptations of the flesh, uh, that we might taste and see that you are good. Do that by the power of your spirit that brought us to life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 103. This is a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he remembers our frame. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word. Well, I love old tools, old mechanical things, old telephones, old typewriters, 
old woodworking tools. Sometimes you pick up a tool, maybe at a yard sale or a thrift store or something, and you know it was created with a purpose. It's been carefully crafted, but that purpose isn't immediately obvious. But it's neat when you can eventually discover the purpose for which that tool was made, and you see how masterfully it was designed and fashioned and fabricated to do that one thing, and it does it uniquely well. What's your purpose? What is the thing that you were made to do? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I was made to, to, created to do a particular thing in the world. Eric Little said he felt God's pleasure when he ran in the movie Chariots of Fire. My oldest son has, in these last six or eight months, taken up skydiving. Um, he has something like 65 jumps out of a perfectly good running airplane <laughs> over the last six months or so. And he says, I have found the thing that I, the hobby I've been looking for all my life. But beyond just a hobby or maybe even a vocation in the world, what were you and I made to do? There's a common answer for every one of us. And that is that we were made to know God. That beautiful question and answer to our shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose of man? What is that one supreme thing that you and I were made to do more than anything else? And it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we'll never glorify God and we sure won't enjoy Him until we know Him as He is, as He has revealed Himself even more than um, a lot of big questions in life, there are things I want to know and uh, things I, I can't wait to find out in eternity, why God did what he did. But the thing I most need is to know him. I was struck a few weeks ago by a paragraph, just a few sentences that I heard a friend say in a sermon series he's preaching uh, through the book of Isaiah. And he said these sentences, three sentences, I want you to listen to this. He said, the only times God explains why he does anything are when those explanations give his people an opportunity to better understand him and not their circumstances. Being satisfied about why something happened cannot help you in the next trial. Being satisfied about who God is surely can. Well, this morning, your life may be a calm, quiet pond, or it may be a Cat 5 hurricane, and Jim Cantori ought to be reporting from your kitchen uh, because of the turmoil in your life. Or it may be somewhere likely in between. And in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves, the thing we most need to know is what is God like. I've been reading a few pages a day. I was convicted uh, recently. Someone pointed out if you take and just read three pages a day, just during the weekdays of something that's difficult or hard to read, in a year's time, you read 750 pages. 
And so I thought I'll start with something I've read before and liked, and so I've been rereading Jim Packer's Knowing God. It's 50 years old this year. And he writes early in the third chapter, he says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. Jesus said in John 17, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He writes, what is the best thing in life? bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. It's the knowledge of God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Well, this morning as we look at Psalm 103, I want us to see a God who prevails for his people. We need to know so much in the course of this life when we are tossed about by the vicissitudes and the waves and the things that come out of left field or the long-term things that don't seem to ever get any better and the, the great pleasures that suddenly surprise us and the griefs that suddenly surprise us, we need to know that we have a God who prevails for his people. I want us to see how he does that in Psalm 103. First, in these first five verses, to see how God prevails for needy people. God prevails for needy people. Life has a way of regularly reminding us of what is really always true, though we try to ignore it, that we are much more like newborn babies than we care to admit. Apart from God's sustaining power, the the beat of your heart that you feel in your chest right now wouldn't happen. This building would not stay up and support us apart from God's sustaining power. But even on a more earthly level, the the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the, the common grace that kept us from killing each other on the way to church this morning is all by God's mighty hand. The power that we think we have, the to-do list that we get up every morning and say, these are the things I'm going to do today, that's just a mediated power that we have. It's God has given us those raw materials. God has given us everything that we have. God has given the energy in our bodies to do those things, and we find out that we don't create anything. We just sort of rearrange things that God has already made. Any power that we have in this world is power that is flowing through us. And in fact, we're really quite powerless. But brothers and sisters, it is a blessing to be reminded of that. Because it points us to the one who is all power, to the one who prevails. And he prevails not against us, but he is prevailing for us. Look in verses 1 and 2 at just how powerless David is. He's having to to work himself up with all of creation and all that God has done. And David, whom the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart. And David is getting up in the morning and he's having to talk to himself. And he's having to remind himself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David can't even remember what God has shown him about himself, and neither can you and I. So we have to stir ourselves up. There's a a really good pattern in these first few verses. I think I've said to you before, when Martin Lloyd-Jones writes at the beginning of spiritual depression, most of us need to listen to ourselves less, and we need to talk to ourselves a lot more. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He is stirring himself up. Many of us, I think, get up in the morning, maybe physically and certainly spiritually, like the man in the old Dunkin' Donuts commercial, you know, who swung his legs over the side of the bed and it's dark and he says, I have to go make the donuts. And we get up in the morning and we say, I have to meet with God. I have to worship God. And if we're honest, our souls are cold. And so we need help. We need to recall God's blessings. Maybe it's reading a few pages from a book. Maybe it's pulling out the hymnal and singing to yourself, singing to the Lord. Maybe uh, it's listening to a section of a a sermon you heard recently, something you want to press deep in your hearts. Do whatever you have to do to get the coals burning. Do whatever you have to do, humanly speaking, to light the pilot, to fire up the boiler. David needed that. If David needed that, then there should be no shame in admitting that we need that. Someone said of David in these first few verses, his will is lecturing his emotions and it's encouraging his mind. His will is lecturing his emotions and it's encouraging his mind. Well, and notice he rolls out of that into, into, at the end of verse 2, forget not all his benefits, and then he starts reciting them, and it's coming like a machine gun. It's sort of this pattern that in these, first, uh, in these three verses, or verses 3 to 5, this power-filled, very concise statement of how God acts. Friends, we know what God is like. By seeing how God acts and by listening to what God has said about himself. And he speaks in creation and he acts in his providence. And in these verses, he forgives all your iniquity, verse 3. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. This is uh, as beautiful a summary as you'll find in the Old Testament of what the gospel is. That God has seen us in our need and our inability to do anything for ourselves, to justify ourselves, to do anything but make a mess of the world he has made and a mess of our own lives and of each other. And he has stepped into that in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life, who obeyed perfectly, and in that great exchange gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin. And he becomes in that moment the wickedest man that ever lived. And he takes our punishment in his place and he rises again. And he is reigning eternally at the Father's right hand, and he will come again. And David, here as a prophet, as prophets sometimes did, he, writing, he is writing better than he knows. 
He, he looked to the one to come who would do these things. He believed that God would act in the Messiah who would come. And we look back and we see how God has done these things. And these aren't separate, distinct acts that we distinguish um, as if, you know, well, he, he's, he's uh, forgiven my iniquity and he's partially healed my diseases and I'm waiting to get to the redeems my life from the pit stage. No, these are, are like a statue. Uh, Patty and I were in Florence about a month ago and standing there looking at the 14-foot-high David uh, carved by Michelangelo, and it's on a five-foot pediment, and so it's massive. It'd be like in the middle of this room going up almost to the ceiling, and you can't get it all in, at one angle. And so you walk all the way around it, and you see different things from different perspectives. And I want us to see God's work toward us in Christ Jesus in the gospel um, this morning. He forgives our iniquity. That is our fundamental problem. We sin against a holy God, the one who has made us, who sustains our lives. We take his kindness and his generosity toward us. His holding back his rightful wrath and anger against our treason. And we spit on it. We trample over it. We treat it like yesterday's trash. And how does he respond? He sends his own dear son. And then his son goes away having accomplished the work that his father sent. And he pours his spirit out. And that spirit comes to cold, dead, stony hearts. Our hearts apart from Christ are less alive than the rocks that are underneath that parking lot outside. But God comes and like Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, these dry bones and suddenly God brings them to life. And he gives us life. And when he does that, He does that by forgiving our iniquity. And you know, he doesn't just do that with some of your sin. Some of you may be tempted to to think at the enemy's suggestion, you know, I, I know God could forgive the sins of, you know, sweet little old ladies and maybe Boy Scouts, but I'm not sure he could forgive all of my sin. Because there are things that are in deep in a closet that no one knows. No one but God knows the things that I've done. No one knows but God the things that I've thought. Or the things I've wanted to say to people. And the scriptures say he forgives all your iniquity. There's not a fixed amount that each of us gets. And we better make that portion last like the, the virgins with the oil and the parable in the New Testament. No, it isn't, it isn't this fixed supply that we get. I love what Thomas Watson, the, the old Puritan, says, the vial of God's wrath drips slowly, but the fountain of his mercy overflows. He forgives all your iniquity, and he heals all your diseases. Matthew Henry said, our crimes were capital and our diseases were mortal. We were terminal and God begins to heal them. There are consequences to sin in this world. 
And sometimes those consequences come as a result of our own sin, but often they are the result of sin in the world, a world that doesn't work the way it should, bodies and cells that don't work the way they should, and people in our lives whose lives have been affected by sin. And he takes all of those things that are distorted and he begins to heal them. Now he forgives our iniquities in a moment. But he often takes a long time to heal our diseases, to prepare us for eternity. He is powerful. He could do it all at once, of course. But his love for you is so great that the way a parent takes an infant or a child to the pediatrician and holds them down and the nurse or the doctor comes and they stick a needle in that baby and the baby screams and even worse is apparent they look at you with that look of how could you let them do this to me and so great is the love of God that he takes our sin and he takes other people's sin and he is weaving that for the good of his people to make us holy to give us that long-term family likeness. And David says, verse 4, he redeems your life from the pit. He takes those years that we wasted, like the prodigal son who went into the foreign country and he squandered everything he had. And he has nothing. That, That pit there calls to mind for me Joseph when his brothers had, were preparing to sell him into slavery and they took everything he had and they throw him down in a pit and he has nothing and he's waiting to be given over to this, this terrible judgment by his wicked brothers. Friends, maybe all you see this morning is the pit. Sometimes our discouragement comes from our seeing half the truth this is a messed up world. This, we have messed up hearts and we live in messed up communities and we have messed up families and we we live in a messed up nation. And you may in this season of life be seeing sin and evil up close and more vividly than you ever dreamed you would. Which means you need to see how he redeems from the pit. Everything that you're seeing about this world is true. But what you're not seeing is the thing that is more true, that is more final, that God redeems us from the pit because of what he is like. And he doesn't always make our immediate troubles less painful. But he reminds us who rules over all. When you know what God is like, then you watch and you wait as you pray and you begin to see him act. And like Joseph, who was in that pit, who decades later could get to the latter part of his life and say what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And he was working out his glorious plan and he indeed had redeemed Joseph's life from the pit. We're told that he 
He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That's that biblical Hebrew word hesed, the long-suffering, steadfast, covenantal love of God. As I said, he doesn't just give a fixed portion, put a little in your hand and tell you to, to be careful with it, but you don't want to lose it. No, he crowns you with it, with steadfast love and mercy. That is his posture toward you in Christ Jesus, his never-failing covenant love. It isn't like he, he says, all right, you got one more chance. You have blown it, and you have blown it, and you have blown it, and I am at the end of my rope. We may say that to children, we may say it to employees, we may say it to spouses, but God will never say that to you. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And it's a pledge. It is a promise. We need steadfast promises. The only time Patty and I have ever lived outside of the Carolinas, we lived in Florida for three years in the early 90s in seminary, and that was when I finally joined AAA, because I realized we've moved here, and we don't know anybody. And who are we going to call if the car breaks down, or we have a flat tire, or whatnot? And we, we trusted AAA, and you do trust AAA, you know, until you need them. <laughs> and then you find out how long it's going to take them to get there, and you end up changing the tire yourself. But God's love is steadfast. It will never change. There's nothing you can do to undo his steadfast love and mercy. And look how he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed. God begins to change our appetites. He changes our desires. Things that we used to pass the time with no longer are satisfying. And things like the scriptures or being with other Christians that we used to find just colossally boring and what a way to go through life doing that. And now we can't get enough of it. And he's transforming us. We no longer, as the Proverbs say, we no longer are like dogs who just return to our own vomit. But instead, he begins to do a new thing in us. He does this for people who don't deserve it. David didn't deserve it. You and I do things, if we're honest, for people who can benefit us. You know, there's always a quid pro quo going. We, we think, if I do, I'm sort of paying this ahead, and that way I can call this person when I need them. And God does this out of his sheer kindness for sinners. You may be here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're kind of on the bubble. You don't know if you want to be a Christian. Maybe somebody twisted your arm and brought you here. Friend, you know nothing of these saving benefits that God has for his people. How can you explain the world apart from knowing God? You've got two choices. You can go deeper into yourself and to say, despite any contrary evidence, I think the answer's in here somewhere, and I'll just keep peeling back the pieces of the onion until you find there's nothing at the center of the onion. Or you can run to a God who forgives 
and who heals and who redeems and who satisfies your soul as never before. That is this God who prevails on behalf of needy people. But he also prevails on behalf of sinful people. Look in verses 6 to 12, and we'll move faster through this. But David now unpacks the reasons we are such needy people that he described in verses 1 to 5. And it's because we're sinful people and we're dying people. These, they're somewhat interrelated, but, but let's, let's look at them separately. Verses 3 through 5 were just, as I said, this machine gun fire. And now David is slowing down the tempo of the psalm. And he's reflecting not so much on the results of God's prevailing, but we learn more about God's nature and what he does. In verse 6, David tells us he works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Of course, that raises the question, well, how does he do that? You know, God is all-powerful, but God can't violate his own nature. And so it isn't some cosmic snap of the fingers. It isn't, you know, the um, uh, I dream of Jeannie, you know, when when she did this, and suddenly God can just change the nature of the universe. God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed by oppressing his own son and by taking uh, oppressed people and he works righteousness into us and he brings justice on our behalf. Again, David is writing better than he knows. And in verse 7, David says, He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Whenever you're reading the scriptures and there's a reference back to Moses and to the children of Israel and to the Exodus, that is the great deliverance event in the Old Testament. That is the great work of God foreshadowing what he would do in Christ Jesus. And David is telling us by recalling this in verse 7 that God hasn't changed. He was covenantally faithful to his people in their oppression in Egypt. And he is still that kind of God who is delivering his people, just like he did for Moses and the children of Israel. That's our dilemma, friends. We are trapped. We are as trapped as they are. And we are trying to make bricks without straw. And praise God in the face of that, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, when you read your Bible about what God is like, you and I never have to worry that he is somehow changed. The Bible tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you go into my attic, you will find the remnants of old hobbies of past interest things I just can't quite bear to part with, but truth be told, I'm never going to take those things up again. God has no attic. He has not changed. There are no people that God has moved on from who have ever come to him. When Jesus says, not a thing can snatch you out of my hand, that's what David is alluding to here in verse 7. Verse 8, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That steadfast love dwells alongside his righteous anger over sin. But he's slow to anger. 
I don't know if you've ever lived with a hot-headed, quick-tempered person. Um, I have earlier in my life. You'll be pleased to know it's not Patty. Um, But with a hot-tempered person, you never quite know what is going to set them off. And so you're always sort of on edge because it seems like the least little thing, and they are off to the races in this irrational anger. And some people think that God in the Old Testament is like that. That he is one little fuse away from just taking out a couple of nations in an instant or taking out a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. But friends... His anger is slow. There there are not free sins. There are no punch cards. There's no way out of his judgment on sin. But he withholds his full anger in in part that we might repent. But do not mistake slowness for uncertainty. His judgment and his anger are slow. But one day they will come swiftly. Verse 9, how can David say he will not always chide or keep his anger forever? Under the Spirit's influence, David is pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's not like God's anger had an expiration date or it was going to run out of steam. No, he's not going to keep his anger forever because he will send one who will come and absorb that. Absorb that wrath in a righteous life and in his death on a cross. And so we get a better deal. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why is that? Well, because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verses 11 and 12 He shows us two examples of things that are, as far as we're concerned, infinite, virtually infinite, as as much as we can conceive. His covenant love for his people and the removal of transgression he points to as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. Never forget that is a costly love. And it's a costly love that has a price that he has paid in Christ Jesus. Protestant liberalism, in the great words of Richard Niebuhr, gave us a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But nothing could be farther from the truth. We bring our sin and it meets God's wrath and it is only turned away in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the God of the Bible is both kind and just. In fact, his kindness is most vividly seen in his justice, in his just response to sin. He's not the generic Santa Claus at the mall who is kind to every little boy and girl who sits on his lap and sees who's naughty or nice. No, he's kind to the undeserving. He's kind to the unrighteous. He's kind to the evil. He's kind to the abuser. He's kind to the liar. He's kind to the thief. He's kind to the murderer. 
And Paul writes in, in Corinthians, and such were some of you, but we've been washed. And that brings us finally to what I'll say is God's prevailing for his dying people. To be a human being on this side of the fall is to be a creature. Some things are aspects of us because we are finite human beings that would have been true before the fall. I don't think Adam and Eve could fly. Adam and Eve couldn't instantly go from one place to the other. They couldn't look behind walls and know what was there. There's some things that are innate to our being creatures. And even more so on this side of the fall and God's judgment on sin. But look at how God responds to that. He doesn't just say, well, look at the mess you've made. You're on your own. You've made your bed. You can sleep in it. You've made this world. You can live in it. Look in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. He remembers that we're but dust. He knows that we're frail. Remember how needy we are? He sees that better than we even see it ourselves. And David is talking here in these remaining verses about our being creatures, our being finite. Like a parent who watches a young child who can barely begin to walk and barely begin to feed themselves. You may, depending on where you are in life right now, you may not see much compassion. Let me leave you with the words of Job wisely who says in Job 35, 15, it's a good verse to memorize. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He, he knows what we're like, verse 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. And then in verses 15 and 16, this comparison to grass. You know, you go out to cut the grass and you've got to push the mower through it and it's, it's high and, and you're, you're sort of doing battle with the grass and it's full of moisture and, you know, sometimes the mower bogs down. It's more powerful than the, the, the lawnmower. And you come out two days later and it's just nothing. It'll blow away in the wind. There is nothing to it anymore. And so too are we in our creatureliness. We are dying people. And he prevails for dying people. His love for us is everlasting. His love is even to our children's children. The blessing of living under his fatherly care is he shows uh, his righteousness to children's children, to those who remember his covenant. It's available to all who fear him, who keep covenant through the great covenant keeper, Christ Jesus. His rule over his creation is pervasive. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in all of heaven and earth over which King Jesus does not say, mine. And there is not one aspect of your life over which King Jesus does not say, mine. So as we wrap up this morning, 
Look quickly in verses 20 to 22. David is overwhelmed again. He was speaking to himself in those first two verses, and now he is back, uh, if you will, looking beyond even what he can see. He, he calls for everything, not just people to bless God. He calls for the angels and the, the heavenly host, the mighty ones, the, the heavenly army who obey God's word. Verse 21, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. He's not talking about people like Kyle and me. He's talking about his angels, the the cherubim and the seraphim, everything. David is calling for for the, 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 the wood in this room, for the stone on the floor, for everything to praise God. It is like he is about to burst having thought about who God is and what God is like. Those of you men who have been married, you remember how you felt in those first moments or day when you knew you had found the one? Or moms, perhaps how you felt when you saw the pregnancy test and you knew you were pregnant, but you hadn't told anybody yet. Or maybe students, the way you feel when you get an unexpectedly good grade and nobody else has seen it, but you can't wait to show your friends at the next break. That's what David is like. He is overwhelmed with who God is. And now the things around him have grown strangely dim, as the hymn says, in the light of his glory and grace. Back to Jim Packer, he said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls his Father. When we're overwhelmed by our neediness and by our sin and by being finite human beings who are dying in this world, the thing we most need is to be overwhelmed with who God is. The love of God for needy, sinful people that we see in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has never turned away a single person who has cried out to him. It's what you and I were made to do. To know him so that we could glorify him and enjoy him forever. You can't do either of those things except to the extent that you know him. But the wonderful thing, it is the grandest thing to which we can ever give minutes or hours or days of our lives. Pray with me. Lord, we confess so often we have to rouse ourselves out of a stupor as David did in those first verses of Psalm 103. But Lord, we want so much to end like David ended Psalm 103, overwhelmed with who you are and how you have acted. Lord, give us to study you. Give us to know about you so that we might know you. Do that, we pray, through the goodness of your mercy and grace and because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.